This ad brought to you by the Cato Institute. Which U.S. state is the freest? Which is the least free? See how your state ranks at the Cato Institute's new web project and free publication, freedominthe50states.org. Hi, this is Steve Comaro. I'm the Vice President and News Director of CQ Roll Call, and welcome to our podcast. Uh, today we have some special guests. We have Ian Pryor, who's Communications Director for the Senate Leadership Fund, uh, which is a Republican organization. We have Shripal Shah, who is Communications Director for the Senate Majority PAC, which is a Democratic organization. And my colleague, Nathan Gonzalez, of the Rothenberg and Gonzalez Political Report and of Roll Call. Uh, we're going to try to sort out here who thinks they're going to win control of the Senate coming up. And I'm going to throw it first to Nathan. Uh, what's the impartial state of play at this point? Well, the, the bottom line is that uh, Democrats need to gain four seats uh, and they will control the Senate if Hillary Clinton is elected president and Tim Kaine would be the uh, tie-breaking vote as the vice president. Democrats need a gain of five seats uh, to gain the majority, and then it doesn't matter who wins the White House. And uh, right now, I think control of the Senate is firmly in play. Uh, we are in this uh, state of uh, this sort of a volatile state between debates and, and after debates where uh, the, the dynamics of the race are changing. But I think ultimately we're talking about six states that will decide the majority uh, on the most of them are Republican defensive seats in New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, Missouri, North Carolina, and the open seat in Indiana. And then Democrats are on the defensive in Nevada where Harry Reid is retiring. And I think um, those six states will, uh, will determine who's in control. And, and right now a lot of them are very close and very fluid. Let me ask uh, Ian, what, what would you say is the number one priority out of those states for your pack? Uh, you know, I don't think you can necessarily put a priority on, on one state. I mean, I think, you know, ideally we want to win all those seats. Um, but I do think that, you know, the interesting um, state there is Nevada. Uh, you know, that's the one seat where we have a pickup opportunity. It's obviously Harry Reid's seat. And I think if that's something where uh, we can pick that seat up, it's going to make it a lot more difficult for, for Democrats to ultimately regain the majority. So that's sort of the X factor that I look at in the state of play. Shripal, would you agree with that analysis? Do you think uh, you're really at risk in Nevada? I would think I would agree with the first part of the analysis in that, you know, I wouldn't prioritize one over the other. We are we, we consider all of these toss ups. And I think Nathan's rankings uh, reflect that these are all toss up races that are essentially at, or at worst, um, as far as our polling is concerned, you know, tied. Um, but at the same time, a lot of these states that you just named off are states that, you know, Secretary Clinton has started to develop a lead at the at the presidential level, Pennsylvania, uh, New Hampshire, you know, and depending on which polls you're looking at, those leads are anywhere from a couple of points. But, um, you know, in other places, they, they're, they're approaching the high single digits. Um, you know, the way I look at that is, you know, okay, four weeks from now, we go into election day and whatever state we're talking about, the polls show that the Senate race is tied. But simultaneously, Hillary Clinton is winning that state by eight points. We all know how that ends. We've seen that before. And that kind of goes back to what we were talking about at the start of this cycle. The states that we're talking about uh, are essentially you know, states that, that lean blue in presidential years, states that the president has won either once or twice in 08 and 12, states like Pennsylvania that haven't voted for a Republican since, since H.W. Bush. We're talking about the 80s now. When you when you look at the map from that sense, I, I think that you know if the election were held today, we would take back the majority. 
Um, and but do you I think, think? Do you think in this? Uh, in this, I think one of the surprises for me this cycle has been the maybe initial lack of connection between the presidential race and the Senate races. I mean, what you the the dynamic you described about basically the lack of ticket splitting, I think, was absolutely the trend coming in. But I'm not convinced that a lot of voters automatically think that Donald Trump is the head of the Republican Party. I know that's part of the messaging, but it feels like Democrats have struggled more to make that connection between the Republican candidate and Donald Trump than maybe what uh, what you thought when Donald Trump became the presumptive nominee. Possibly, but I also think that a lot of people on my side of the aisle were making the same argument about Democrats in 2014 at this point in October. Uh, you know, the argument was that, well, so-and-so has a different brand in state and they've created separation and, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think in a national election, uh, like a presidential election, like the one we're in right now, that has just become increasingly difficult. And in the same way, uh, in previous cycles, you've seen that the data kind of break that way as you get later into October. I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's the exact same thing you see, uh, play out over these next three, four, four and a half weeks. And again, I think that underscores the difficulties that Republicans had going into the cycle. We were talking about presidential battleground states that for the most part have trended our way or the president has won twice in 08 and 12. Um, and that's just, you know, that's the fundamentals of the, of the map right now. And those, to my mind, have not changed. We're still talking about Pennsylvania. We're still talking about New Hampshire. We're still talking about, you know, those states that that President Obama was successful in in both 08 and 12. If we could, I, because I have you both here, I think this is the first time that you've appeared together on a <laughs> stage, correct. actual or virtual. Um, you both, you represent two of the largest super PACs uh, in the country. Uh, but when people, normal people think about super PACs, it's dark money, special interests. Uh, you know, it, it's always in that cheesy tone that I just had. But what uh, is what would you say is the the biggest myth that uh, that people have about super PACs that you could dispel for people. Sure, you know I think there are there are two things um, that that need to be dispelled about super PACs. One is that donors of super PACs are disclosed. You know you constantly see people talking about oh the the dark money super PAC. No, there's no such thing as a dark money super PAC. Super PAC donors are disclosed with the FEC. They're political organizations. That's number one. Number two is that super PACs have this ability to. Uh, completely change an election one way or the other, whether it's Senate Majority Pack or Senate Leadership Fund. We're very much an amplification system. You, know, you still need good candidates running good races uh, to win elections. We can help. We can help get the message out. We can help, you know, define the opponent. We can help, uh, you know, in various ways with communication. Uh, but you know, if you have a bad candidate and you turn up the amplifier, it's it's going to be like bad music. It's just not going to work. Um, so I think those are really the two things where people may get the wrong impression about what super PACs you know, do and can do. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. The, the, the volume of times where you'll see a clip that says dark money group enters state XYZ and, and the lead is Senate Majority Pack is up with a new... Well, hold on a second. By definition... Like Ian just said, we, we disclose our donors. We're not, you know, dark money is something else. And that obviously dark money exists. But, you know, when you're talking about super PACs, we literally disclose once a month all of our donors and all of our expenditures and we file IE reports and, and all that stuff. But I think that, you know, uh, there's still some some confusion about that. Um, and, and people don't necessarily, uh, you know, understand how, how all of these things, you know, work in, in the day's day to day and the ins and outs of it all. But 
beyond that, I do think that um, a- as an extension of that, there's also some confusion on, you know, us, h- how we're set up as independent organizations. I've had more than, you know, a handful of reporters say, hey, did you talk to the campaign about this? And I said, no, I didn't because I can't. Um, by, by definition, independent requir- means that we're independent. So I think it's, it's the money, the dark money phrase, and then just how, how you know, we are set up into how we work independently of the, the campaigns and the campaign committees. And I always get a kick out of when candidates tell try to tell outside groups what to do, which I think you're not allowed to coordinate. And I think might be technically illegal, but I know it's a game. It's, you know, it's just, they have to rhetorically say these sort of things, but it has no binding. You know, there's, there's no really way to, to make that. Um, Ian, uh, what super PACs are most, maybe most known for uh, negative ads. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about uh, what specifically this cycle, what type of hit or attack, what, what is really resonating uh, right now, uh, in terms of what what uh, Senate Leadership Fund can do uh, in a race, and then uh, Shripa, you'll, you'll, I'll turn it to you. Yeah, and I think there are there are two different approaches. I think Senate Majority Pack and, and the Democrat groups have one approach, which I'm sure they'll talk about. Ours is very focused on on the individual candidate, and if you look at sort of the states where we've been in. Uh, you know, Catherine Cortez Masto, we've been focusing on when she was attorney general and the rape kit controversy. Uh, Katie McGinty in Pennsylvania, we're focused on the revolving door and, and you know, allegations of corruption. Uh, Florida, we were focused on Patrick Murphy's resume and, you know, the, the kind of individualistic things that define a candidate. Um, even up in New Hampshire, you know, we talked about the budget issues and Maggie Hassan vetoing the budget and whatnot. So we're we're very much focused on at least in in the purple states where uh, where we are, we're focused on sort of defining that individual candidate based on on their record and trying to keep it more on the I don't want to say local, but not necessarily getting into the national issues. And so I think that's where our focus has been mainly, especially in that that tranche of states like Pennsylvania, Nevada, New Hampshire, and Florida. Obviously, if you go to Missouri, it's a little bit different because it's a red state. And, you know, ultimately the theory of, of the case from our perspective is that, you know, Jason Kander is a liberal in, in a state like Missouri that traditionally votes Republican. You know, that's ultimately um, going to be the winning argument. Uh, Shreepal, would you agree that that's the strategy on the Democratic side as well? Are you going after individual traits or would it be like the vice presidential debate where you had the Democrat going after the top of the ticket? Are are you guys trying to use Mr. Trump against I, I think folks? it's a combination of both, actually. You're still always going to want to make the argument about, um, you know, whatever senator that, or, or candidate you're, that you're uh, trying to communicate with voters about, about why he or she is, is not the right choice for a Senate. So in that sense, yeah. Yeah, uh, you're still going state by state and talking about their records and what they've done and um, what they've voted for and who they've supported and, and all of that across the board. It's it's slightly different, though, because we're talking mostly entirely about incumbents now, right, from our perspective. We're talking about, um, you know, a lot of folks who came in in 2010 or uh, folks who have been around a little bit longer in the form of Roy Blunt, uh, for example, since we just talked about Missouri. But, again, you're still um, – are, are there going to be some themes that probably connect a lot of those uh, races? Yeah, because these guys have all been in the Senate together for the past six years, so their voting records uh, are similar in that sense. But at the same time, you you know, you are going to make more specific arguments about, you know, Roy Blunt's a good example about, um, 
his family and the lobbying and the conflicts of interest that, you know, average voter might think uh, are inappropriate. Um, or if you go to, uh, you know, a state like Pennsylvania, you can talk about Pat Toomey. We're talking about Pat Toomey's votes to protect uh, some of the special interests that who are coincidentally supporting his his campaign. And so it, it's, a, it's a little more nuanced. But, yeah, you, you see what Ian's talking about where you do want to make it about the, the specific person. But there will always, you know, sometimes be overlap when you're talking about incumbents. Yeah. Well, as we as we come to uh, as we finish this out, uh, the Rothenberg and now Rothenberg Gonzalez Political Report has a we're kind of known for this eye test: which candidate is more likely to win? I know that each of you believe that your parties will control, uh, but uh, let's play. Let's do a couple quick round robin: which candidate is more likely to win, uh, Richard Burr or Roy Blunt? Yeah. I'll, I'll let Shreepa go first on this one. Um, can I say neither? <laughs> no, you had to. More likely. Is it likelihood? Um, I guess if you're just looking at public polling right now, you would have to probably say Blunt has a small advantage. If I'm just looking at the real clear politics, it, you know, the. But you the have more data than that. You, right. You're not just going off real clear Which politics. Which is why <laughs> I say that neither of them. <laughs> that's, that's what I'm seeing. Um, but, you know, you'll, you'll see how these next three and a half, four weeks play out. But. I think both of them um, are in a lot of trouble, and there's a reason why both sides are spending a, a lot of money. Um, we're, not, we're not just doing that because, you know, we feel like it. We know that there's opportunity to win in both of those Ian, places. Ian, Richard Burr Democrats. or Roy Blunt? I think both win in the end, but I'm going to go to the default. Missouri's a red state. It's redder than North Carolina, so that gives him, um, you know, the, the stronger chance, but I do think both win. All right. Uh, last question. Uh, not, which is, not which race is a priority, but which race do you think is the one ultimate bellwether. One ultimate bellwether. Uh, I think I think New Hampshire. New Hampshire? Shreepal? I've never believed in bellwether states because I would never say that you can, you know, take away what the New Hampshire electorate does on election night and say, well, that means what, you know, that's how Nevada is going to go because – you're just talking about apples and oranges. You're talking about one state that has, you know, but, but, 10 or 11%. Would you agree? Does New Hampshire does the does the majority hinge on New Hampshire? Maybe, but again, I, I don't. I, I think it's tough to say because when you started, you listed off six states um, that were kind of seen as pure toss-ups right now. You know, assuming that you know we we hold Nevada, we only need to win two of those. So I don't know that, you know, any one of those would, would necessarily be a bellwether or a must win. I think for us, we have the luxury of having a wider path to, to get the majority back. A great discussion. Thank you all for coming. Shripal Shah, Communications Director of the Senate Majority PAC, which represents the Democrats. Ian Pryor, Communications Director of the Senate Leadership Fund, which is Republican. And our own Nathan Gonzalez. I'm Steve Comaro, Vice President and News Director of CQ Roll Call. Thank you all for joining us. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and Stitcher, and you can find all of our podcasts at rollcall.com forward slash podcasts.